Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Matt Slick. He is the proprietor of a very thorough, well-researched website titled CARM.org, C-A-R-M.org. The acronym stands for Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. He's published two parts, uh, two part books on the topic of apologetics and atheism. The title of the books are Apologetics and Atheism, Exposing Atheism Weak Atheism's Weaknesses, Volume 1 and 2. I've only read the second part, so maybe he can fill in on one, but those aren't his only books. He's also published Examining Islam in 2016, Notes on Calvinism 2017, Christian Defense Manual, published 2020. He's also written three fictional books, Time Trap, The Influence, and Atheistica, An Atheist Nation, published 2020. But we're going to go into more detail about this subject of apologetics and atheism. So, Mr. Matt Slick, are you there? Yes, I am. Thanks awesome. for having me on. No, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may not have heard of your background or name, can you talk about kind of your journey through Christianity, what, what led you to start this website, CARM, and write this book, Apologetics and Atheism? Well, sure. Um, so my name is Matt Slick, S-L-I-C-K. It's not a fake name. I sometimes get that, that uh, like a radio um, alias or whatever, but no, it's my real name. And moved. Uh, I moved 26 times before I was 12 years old, was involved in the occult pretty heavily. Seen things. I get a lot of stories about that, but uh, got a, had a very, very, very dramatic uh, conversion to, to uh, Christianity when I was 17. I'm 64 now. And uh, so I've always had this ability to remember things and uh, think logically and critically. And uh, I ended up going into ministry. Uh, I've been a seminary. I'm a seminary graduate, Master's of Divinity from Westminster Theological Seminary, Escondido, California. And uh, was a pastor for a while. And as God often does, he changes our path. And I was confused why my path was changing. Lo and behold, to find out that this new thing called the Internet was coming up and God was preparing me to be uh, an Internet apologist. And uh, so I started this website, CARM.org, in the early days of the Internet back in 95 because people were asking me questions online. And I kept um, having the same questions be asked. So I said, well, I'm going to do this thing called a website. Oh, I got to figure out what a website is, how to make them and things like that. I had to teach myself and put this thing up. I didn't know what to call it. Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, CARM, seemed to be okay. And um, got a domain and started putting articles up just simply to say to people that I was answering questions for on the Internet, here, go here. You know, just here's the answer to that. You know, instead of me just saying it over and over again. And... Um, so we did this uh, many years ago, like I said, in 95, and, um, and uh, so CARM has grown. Uh, now, uh, what happened was people started, back then, started coming into the website and asking more questions, and they would email me. So I'd write up another article, and this thing just started to explode. So it's had 146 million visitors. We've been a visitor from every single country in the world. We have a, a Spanish version, and it's called Mia Peak. Dot org, and we have a guy who runs it in Colombia. We have a, a Portuguese version, uh, Defendiofe, and that's uh, in Brazil. We're supporting a guy right now in Turkey, and he will be working on uh, the Turkish and Russian version when he gets out of school. We've got connections in, and people we support in Africa, 
and they'll be working some st stuff there. It's a different way, not so much website stuff, but other means. We've got a full-time guy in Salt Lake City and uh, other people who work and support us. Um, so uh, we've had a lot of experiences. Uh, let's just say that a lot of people don't like what I do uh, inside the church and outside the church because I'm very biblical. I stick with what the Bible says and defend the Christian faith. And so uh, I spend a lot of time on the internet, a lot of time writing and researching, and um, that's what I do. And I've written several books. I've been doing radio for 16 years, five days a week. I get on the internet and uh, why can't my <laughs> be slick? <laughs> because you gotta be slick like me. Uh, I learned to run as a kid because of that name too, I'll tell you. Hey, his name's Slick, let's get him. But uh, anyway, so it's just been a great deal and uh, I, I wanna live for my Lord Jesus Christ and I wanna equip the Christians with what the truth of the word of God is. Most Christians don't know the biblical theology. Most Christians don't know uh, a lot of stuff about Jesus, salvation, the Trinity and various things because they're woefully ignorant because the Christian church is failing to do its overall job uh, of late. And um, so anyway, that's what I do. That's a brief kind of an intro. Gotcha. And so you've written these books about Islam, about right answers for wrong beliefs. But what led you write to this specific two book series, Apologetics and Atheism? Well, uh, I enjoy talking to atheists and atheists know me. And this gonna, I don't want to sound braggy, but you type my name in Google, all kinds of stuff comes up. And I'm known in the atheist community for tackling them. I love talking to atheists. Uh, atheism as a philosophical position, I don't care what they say, whether it's um, slick dissident. <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, I don't care what kind of atheist they are, whether it's lack belief, strong atheist, weak atheist, uh, pantheist, panentheist, agnostic, whatever it is, a kind of theological views, I, I'll talk to them all. I've done formal debates with some top atheists and I'm known for the transcendental argument for God's existence. Um, and so I, I enjoy talking with them. It's very, very, very easy to defeat atheism. And so it's one of the things I teach Christians uh, how to do and how to deal with. And there we go, apologetics and atheism. That's number two in a series on apologetics. I'll be do doing apologetics and Mormonism, apologetics and Roman Catholicism, apologetics and. And so that's a series, apologetics and. and I see. Um, so that's atheism is one part of the series against Mormonism, Catholicism, etc. Yep, uh, Islam and all kinds of stuff. And, it, and it's written in a very casual style. It's meant to be uh, not theologically uh, deep and philosophically deep, like talking about pre uh, propositions as they, relate, as they relate to epistemological issues and the grounding theories of knowledge. So don't get into that kind of stuff because it's too heady for people. But I'm able to take stuff and bring it down to a level where, oh, I get what he's saying, that kind of stuff. And that's what that book is aimed at. Right. And so what do you, what do you think the primary uh, directions you need to or, or points you need to hit when you're responding to the standard atheist claims? What you always have to do when you talk to anybody, and particularly with atheists, you always have to ask where they're coming from. What kind of an atheist? And they'll say, what do you mean what kind of an atheist? I'll say, are you a strong atheist, which you, you deny God's existence? Are you a weak, weak atheist? You don't know if God exists. You're just open. Or uh, do you lack belief in God? Or what? Where do you come from? And so you always have to ask the question, you want to find out where they're coming from. If it's a strong atheist, well, they'll say, no, God does not exist. Well, you can shoot that down very quickly. 
if they say they don't know God exists, then there's a, another approach that you can go into. And uh, so I, I tackle this kind of stuff. That's the first thing you got to do. You always got to ask who they are, what they believe, what their assumptions are, and things like that. That's the first thing you've got to do. And you also uh, emphasize that they need to define their terms. Maybe that's it, is what they mm -hmm. exactly are. They seem to always view like Christianity as being too harsh uh, or the God of the Bible is too harsh. What, uh, what is your approach to them when you talk about transcendental truths? Well, truth is an interesting topic because when you ask someone what is truth, they're going to give you different answers. And a lot of people don't understand, a lot of Christians don't understand the Lordship of Jesus Christ in all areas of our lives. He's not just Lord of Sunday morning and then we go do our, our regular lives, so to speak. That is not biblical Christianity. Jesus says in Luke 9:23, pick up your cross uh, daily and follow after me. That's whether you work, you eat, you uh, do, uh, you go to theater, whatever it is. Uh, he's the Lord of all of your life. And so um, when we talk about the nature of truth, what we want to understand is that truth is that which corresponds to the mind of God. Truth is something that God has. Now, the first uh contradiction to truth was in the garden of uh, of adam and eve in genesis chapter 3 when satan said to eve did god really say so the first thing is the enemy of truth doubts the truth did he really say you understand god knows all things first john 3:20 if he knows all things and he has always been there uh, he's always existed psalm 90 verse 2 and he doesn't change malachi 3:6 well if that's the case then he has all knowledge absolutely. He does not increase in knowledge. So that means, since he cannot lie, Titus 1-2, that means whatever he speaks is always true. So Jesus says, who's, Jesus who's God in flesh, I can give you the verses and defend that from the Bible. Jesus says in John 14-6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. It's an absolutely true statement. There is no other way to go to God the Father and be saved other than Jesus Christ. Not your sincerity, not your baptism, not your whatever. It's only through per the personal work of Jesus Christ because that's what Jesus said, because he is truth in flesh. He is the one who knows all things, God the Father, God the Son, the Trinitarian doctrine, which I can teach on. And so truth is what corresponds to the mind of God. If an atheist wants to make a statement that they assert is true, they have to be able to lay a foundation by which they can justify the truth statement. If they want to say God is wrong, then they have to be able to establish a universal moral principle by which they can judge what is right and wrong. So when I talk to atheists, they'll say, well, God was mean in the Old Testament. And I'll say, so? You don't like it. That doesn't mean it's true or not true or right or wrong. It just means you don't like it. If you want to say he's mean, you know, you can say it all you want. Okay, but mean doesn't mean good or bad. It's just, it's just what it is. So what's your complaint? And show me the scriptures that you want to complain about. And so if they do, then we go and read the context and then explain things about stuff. And what they'll often do is say, well, God is, is morally wrong. And I love it when atheists say that. I love that. I say, really? And what moral standard do you have by which you can judge God? What, what have you got? And the more you dialogue with atheists, the more you'll find out they don't have a leg to stand on. They don't have anything uh, to, to offer us as far as intellectual viability goes, moral truth statements, truth statements, generic statements, uh, transcendentals, the logic, all kinds of stuff. They, they, they don't have anything. So, but they still, they have this kind of view of like uh, this harmful God or perpetual injustice. 
So they still have kind of a moral worldview in a way. They're still judging things, but they don't believe that that morality comes from an eternal father, right? Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's what they say because they deny God's existence. Now, the Bible says that they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness, uh, Romans 1, 18. So they're denying God, even though the evidence of God is around them in creation. And that's uh, Romans 1, 20. So uh, when they, you mentioned perpetual injustice, I, I get a kick out of that when they talk about the God of the Bible being unjust or unjust. And I'll, I'll say, all right, um, give me an example. And uh, they'll say, well, God, you know, killed everybody in the flood, right? And I say, yeah. And they say, well, so what's wrong with that? And they'll say, well, that's wrong to do that. And I said, says who? What are you giving me? What have you got? Well, we don't like that God did that. Well, you don't have to like it, but give me a reason why it is universally wrong. There's a standard of morality that's out there to which you apply to the God of, of Christianity. And incidentally, most atheists don't understand the God of Christianity, which I, I uh, often have to uh, tell them who and what uh, the God of the Bible is so they can understand him and say, don't argue against what you think God is. Argue against what you what the biblical God is. And I say to atheists, I say, I'm required to learn issues of epistemology, deontology, uh, uh, logical issues with infinite, ab absolute infinites, potential infinites. I have to learn um, all kinds of stuff to argue with you guys. And you guys don't even study what the biblical theological position of God is. And then you complain about it. I have to teach you all this all the time. I said, I said, look, I don't want amateurs. I want to talk to people who study. Right. Right. And that, that would change the whole dynamic of the whole conversation. So it's almost as if you talking to an atheist is almost like uh, it's an apologetics, but it's almost like you're evangelizing because you have to teach them the fundamentals of the Old and New Testament. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. 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 You know, they'll say, uh, for example, um, they might say that, that uh, well, let's just stick with what we've already been talking about. God is immoral. And uh, I say, why? And they'll say, well, because um, slavery existed in the Bible. And I say, so slavery is not what God wanted, but it's what he permitted. And I'll ask them, what kind of slavery? And they'll say, it doesn't matter. Any kind of slavery is wrong. And I say, can you define slavery? And they can't even define it. And I say, so are you aware of the different forms of what we call slavery that are found in the scriptures? And they don't know what they're doing, as is typical. In fact, Christians often don't know much about Scripture at all. I have to teach biblical theology to Christians all the time. But uh, you know, I go back to the atheists here. I ask them, show me what have you got? And if people can learn, here, here's the thing. There's a, a three-step rule I try and teach when I teach apologetics, which is the defense of the Christian faith. The first thing you do is define your terms. The second thing you do is use the terms in sentences or statements. The third thing you do is use scripture and logic to validate or invalidate the statements. So it's terms, statements, scripture, and logic. Logic is important because logic can only exist if God exists because of the universal laws of logic upon which we base uh, rationality and their universal abstractions. We talk about this with atheists a lot. But uh, you, you, first thing you do, divine terms, use the terms and sentences, use scripture and logic to validate or invalidate the, 
the statements. And right. So it is interesting that in your approach, like logic fits into apologetics into Absolutely. Christianity. So it's not something that's antagonistic to the Christian faith, correct? Absolutely. Uh, it's great. Logic is not antagonistic at all to Christianity. I use logic a great deal. When I first started doing apologetics against atheists, they were shocked that a Christian would use so much logic against them. They weren't used to that. And other Christians that I know do the same thing. And um, the atheists just get decimated. Uh, they do, and uh, because they're not used to it. Most, I got to say this: the Christian Church is woefully ignorant. The Christian Church in America is weak. The pastors aren't doing their job. Some are, but for the most part, the pastors aren't doing their job teaching biblical theology. What the Trinity is, what the hypostatic union is, what the communicatio idiomatum is, the difference between imputation and justification and sanctification, that it, the nature and extent of the atoning sacrifice, propitiation. They don't uh, teach these things to the congregations. And so the congregations usually are going in and getting babysat. And uh, I call it diaperinian theology, you know, just it's diapers, you know, diapers. It's, it's childish stuff. Most people can't even tell you why Jesus was baptized. People don't even know if he's uh, a man right now. They, they can't tell you what the Trinity is. So Christians are are woefully ignorant inside of biblical theology. And so they don't know how to deal with atheists. They don't know how to deal with the defense of the Christian faith against Roman Catholics, which Roman Catholicism is apostate, or Islam, which is an antichrist and evil religion. It, it is actually an evil religion. They don't know how to deal with the occult. They don't know how to deal with this stuff called UFOs, which a lot of people don't know. There's a lot of stuff about UFOs people aren't familiar with. Um, they don't know how to, to uh, defend themselves. So what they do is uh, they don't even know the faith. So they go to church. They get babysat. They make, made the, their ears are tickled. And they go out to lunch after church. And that's their Christianity. And uh, they start adopting things like women pastors and elders and homosexuality and abortions okay and things like that. So the, this, the reason I'm giving this background is because this is the state of the Christian church. And the atheists can mop the floor with the average Christian because the atheists will ask questions. This is why I write. It's why I teach. It's why I inform people. So last night I did a Bible study and I taught for two hours on eternal security. And I went through all kinds of stuff related to that. And then for another two hours, Q&A afterwards. And so for four and a half, actually it was four and a half hours, I taught and answered questions and debated. And, and uh, it's what, what you got to do. And that's on karm.org, correct? And you yeah, you can, do that? yeah, you can go to YouTube, uh, Karm okay. YouTube or Facebook, karm.org Facebook, and you'll see uh, all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. Stuff that you don't see in churches today, probably, I would, I would right. assume. Right. And, and when so I preach, I teach theology during sermons, and almost every single time Christians are like, I have no idea that was true. I had no idea about that. Tell us some more. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's it's kind of a sad state of the, the general Christian church, how little like actual theological uh, teaching happens on the pulpit. I mean, it's, it's you're right. right, tickling yours. Uh, do you mind taking a few questions from Absolutely. the audience? Okay, sure, I got no one. Problem. What Bible is used by this Protestant? A Protestant, that probably means a person's a Catholic. Um, what I use is the NASB, New American Standard Version. And I, I can read the Greek. 
um, or go through the Greek, I should say. And so I can look at that. And that's the most accurate translation that I have discovered. The ESV is good, but the NASB is better. NASB. And can you d define your uh, what kind of outlook of Christianity you have? We talked about my background. What's yours? <laughs> I'm a five-point Calvinist who's amillennial. Uh, I affirm consistent covenantalism, so I'm a pedo-baptist, but I don't believe it saves. It's just a covenantal sign. And I believe that the rapture is going to occur, and the first ones taken are the wicked, according to what Jesus said. And I also affirm all the charismatic gifts for today. Uh, but they're not uh, normatively used, but they can be uh, experienced by the Holy Spirit working through Christians and the furthering of the gospel. So, that's so can you I, just define what a five-point Calvinist is? I don't even know that. Sure. Calvinism, of, Martin Luther started the Reformation accidentally, and uh, it moved from Germany through Europe. John Calvin was in France, and he wrote what's called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and you won't find this in history cl classes because people hide this. But the Institutes of the Christian Religion, he wrote when he was 27 years old. It's one of the most important documents written in the past thousand years. And uh, it was the foundation for the Puritans and for Reformation theology and then became the undergirding principles of the pilgrims who were Presbyterians who came to America. And so America has a lot of reformed theological, it's called reformed theology, Calvinism, reformed theology, has uh, reformed theological perspectives written in. Okay, so what is Calvinism? It, we don't like the name of Calvin because it's John Calvin, but it just became known to him uh, by his name. But we teach what's called the five points, T-U-L-I-P. TULIP is the acronym. T stands for total depravity, and I can defend all of this, okay? okay. But uh, total depravity teaches that sin has touched all of what we are, heart, soul, mind, body. We're not as bad as we can be. But the unbeliever is a slave of sin, cannot seek for God, does not seek for God, can do no good. And uh, he's a slave of, of unrighteousness. U is uh, T-U-L-I-P. U is unconditional election. God does not look into the future to see who's going to pick him. Uh, because that would be favoritism rejected by James 2, 2 through 4. Um, what he does is he elects people, chooses them for salvation based on what's in him. And this is uh, found in Ephesians 1, 4. Uh, another, uh, I, can go, I, I can teach on this a long time, but nevertheless. L is for limited atonement, that Jesus only legally bore the sins of the predestined or the elect. Uh, he did not bear the sin of everybody who ever lived, and I can back that up very easily from Scripture. I is uh, irresistible grace that at the time of salvation, that regeneration doesn't mean throughout one's life. It means when you're born again, when this regeneration occurs to you, that grace of God's movement cannot be resisted. And P, perseverance of the saints, you do not lose your salvation. You cannot because of the work of Christ. And I hold to all of that and I can defend all of it very thoroughly, very well. Okay, so five. And can somebody ask in the chat, what is the difference between an agnostic and an atheist? Can you define that? Agnosticism, you kind of agnosticism is a subdivision of atheism. Now, atheism, A, the gator, theos, God, atheism, no God. Agnosticism is A, and from gnosko, to know. So atheism says basically there is no God, um, or they just. They say lack belief in God, but God is not there inside of any explanatory ability in, in theory, idea, explanation, or anything. Agnosticism says, well, I don't know if God exists. I don't affirm he does or doesn't. They just don't know. 
So agnosticism and atheism are similar uh, in that both negate the uh, God as a, an explanatory option in their worldview. Gotcha. So, okay. Somebody wants to know why is the flat earth, like, why uh, Why does Matthew deny the truth of God in scripture that the earth is circular and closed stationary flat? Well, here's the thing about flat earth people, and I've written on, on it as well and done the research. You got a problem with flat earth. The Bible doesn't teach it for one thing. The circle of the earth, it also talks about the four corners of the earth. If you're going to say circle, why not go with four corners? If you say four corners, why not go with circle? But the idea is that uh, here's an illustration of something it refutes flat earth it just refutes it very simply very easily you take a table by an analogy a round table let's just say it's three feet in diameter and that represents the circular earth and uh, the continents are there and the water's there you have a dome over the the flat uh, earth and so the dome is as they call the firmament which you get out of genesis but that's another topic and so there's two orbs are the same size in flat earth theory one is the moon and one is the sun and they rotate around each other uh, usually that's what the position is some say they're embedded in the dome the dome is moving all right it doesn't matter which one because that would mean then from that position, any position you would have on that surface, that round circular surface, you could always see the sun and the moon, always because they're above that whole circular area. We can see the moon during the day and the night. Why is it we can't see the sun at the day of the night? Because if the sun and the moon are up there and that, that's embedded up in the sphere or just hovering in there, <clears throat> then why is it that it disappears at night? if it's still visible in that line of sight. And uh, you, you'd be surprised to see what kind of mental, logical gymnastics people go through to try and explain that. Oh, it's a spotlight, you know, it's a spotlight? Where'd you get this? They just make stuff up as they go. And then uh, don't forget the parallax issues and there's other things, but- Oh, there's all kinds of problems. A lot of the yeah. people who believe in the flat earth that do know nothing about discordianism and how those ideas even got planted. If you want to talk about discordianism, that's a whole other subject. But uh, yeah, yeah, I like to yeah. say that the flat earthers don't have all their paws in the litter box. I agree. I, agree. I mean, I had a discussion with a guy flat earth, and the followers were worse than he was. They came after me and said I was terrible. <laughs> and gave me well, all of my one star reviews on my podcast are mostly from flat earth people who got upset. Yeah, yeah, they're interesting. It doesn't matter what you say; you're they're going to come up with something. But I ask them. Why is it you can't see the sun at night if it's up there in direct line? Oh, there's a whole bunch of problems. They yeah. actually literally believe that there's an ice shelf circling there. I mean, most of all of them believe that there's an ice shelf somewhere mm -hmm. and that Antarctica is fake. And uh, it's really crazy. I mean, you really get to you really start to talk to flat earth, flat earther. It's like talking to a cultist. And they believe that the way that Japan attacked the U.S. is like off the charts, like. They didn't. They had to go all the way around this whole place to bomb Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's really sad. It's very. Sad. I actually it feel. I feel very sorry for them. Um, getting back to your book, uh, can you talk about what the euthyphro dilemma is? Euthyphro dilemma. It's yeah. a dilemma that they say has to do with God. Does God declare something morally right? Or does he recognize that something is morally right? If he declares it, then mor morality is arbitrary because he could just said, well, I'll declare that right, I'll declare that wrong. 
so that if that's the case, then morality has no absolute value, which is arbitrary. If you recognize that something is morally right, then there's a principle that's greater than God. He's just recognizing it. And how could he then be God? It's called the Euthyphro Dilemma. The problem with the Euthyphro Dilemma, it's a false dichotomy. There's a third option. God reveals out of his character that which is good. People don't understand, I tell them. The Bible says and teaches, I got scripture for all this, there's only one God. He is the only and he's the, the one and only necessary Trinitarian being, eternally consisting of three simultaneous and distinct persons, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, the three persons share the same divine essence, etc. And I go in, each of the persons function differently. But here we go. God has nothing against which he can be compared and defined. That's an important principle that the atheists need to understand according to the Christian perspective. God has nothing against which he can be compared and defined. Therefore, that which is good is revealed by God's nature, which is consistent with his holiness and righteousness. Otherwise, it would have no way of knowing what good is. So the Euthyphro dilemma presupposes goodness. But how does it justify goodness by which it then objects to God's ability to recognize goodness, declare goodness, and things like that? So pre, the Euthyphro dilemma actually begs the question, makes its fundamental error to begin with, and is also a false dichotomy. And atheists will bring it up like they've got a great thing, and I go, Psh, come on, give me something difficult, I'll say to them. You know. Okay, I got another question for you. Do you consider Arminians your brothers and sisters in Christ? Yes. Gotcha. And can you define what an Arminian is or the Arminian heresy, so-called Arminian heresy is for the audience? Yeah, the Arminians don't hold, well, there's, there are varying uh, degrees of Arminianism. Arminians, uh, the official Arminian position actually is pretty reformed in its theology, um, uh, pretty Calvinistic. A lot of people don't know that. But Arminians, uh, Calvinists are accused of denying free will. We don't deny free will. We have to define what free will is. We don't deny it. Arminians sometimes say we do, but we don't. And I have to correct them on that. Um, but nevertheless, Arminians will say, generally, Arminianism will say you can lose your salvation. Calvinism says, no, you can't. Arminianism says it's up to your free will to believe. Where Calvinism says, no, you can't because uh, in your free will, you're a slave to sin, a hater of God. You can do not do uh, anything good. Which, and God has to grant that you believe, grant you repentance, uh, grant that you come to Christ. Where the Arminians will say, well, that's, that's true. Uh, so now that what they do is they add what's called prevenient grace. God re-enables you to be able to make the choice. And, and they get into really some false doctrines. But uh, they affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, uh, justification by faith alone in Christ alone, the physical resurrection, things like that. And so they're brothers and sisters in Christ. They're just in error in certain theological perspectives. And, and that's okay. Gotcha. All right. Carl Roberts is really firing off questions. Here's another one. How can you consider someone that denies the effectual atonement of Jesus Christ, your brother or sister in Christ? Okay, Carl, I don't know if you're a Calvinist or not, but when you say effectual atonement, you're talking about limited atonement. And nowhere in Scripture does it say you have to affirm limited atonement or effectual atonement idea in order to be saved. 
What you will find is, for example, in John 8, 24, Jesus says, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So it's, a, it's an essential doctrine that him, he himself declares as essential because he says, unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, and 17, if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. And I can go through more, but the scriptures declare the essentials of the Christian faith. Nowhere does it say you must believe in limited atonement in order to be saved. Gotcha. Nowhere. So you have to be able to defend your position if you're going to assert that. I see. Do you what? How how are is the high Calvinist distinguished from a five point Calvinist? Do you know? That's well. You know, some high Calvinists are really um, uh, let's just say uppity <laughs> and uh, traditional. I'm not like that. You know, gotcha. um, I like praise music and and you know I preach in jeans and you know it's. So you might say they might be a more formal version yeah. of Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Would that be fair? Yeah, um, more formal, a little bit more uppity, you know, sing only hymns, stand up, sit down, turn around, touch your toes. You know, um, some will say that you can't be saved if you're an Arminian, and uh, I'll debate them on it. I'll say, show me in Scripture. Always, I always go, show me in Scripture, okay. show me in Scripture. Um, do you... Uh, <laughs> Do you know what the false gospel of synergism is? I'm not familiar. Oh, with yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, monergism and synergism. So I have to tell you what, what the truth is so you'll understand, okay. or, or the listeners will understand. Soteriology is a doctrine of salvation from the Greek soterios, save, salvation, and logos, study, word. So soteriology is a doctrine of salvation. The biblical position of salvation is monergistic, which means that God alone saves. We do not cooperate with God. In order to be saved. We don't do good works to be saved. We don't get baptized to be saved. We don't take communion to be saved. That God is the one who grants that we believe, Philippians 1.29. He grants us repentance, 2 Timothy 2.25. He causes us to be born again, 1 Peter 1.3. We're born again, not of our own will, John 1.13. You cannot come to Christ unless it's been granted to you from the Father, John 6.65. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believe, Acts 13.48. So God is the one who grants it and gives it to us, it's his work, mono, monergism, one. Synergism says we cooperate with God, that in our wisdom, we're the ones who decide if we're to be saved or not. Now, when we get to synergistic view, then we have the view where it goes further along the line. People say, you have to get baptized, as an example, you have to get baptized in order to be saved. And that, of course, is a heresy because that's adding a work to salvation. That form of, of synergism is heretical and damnable. And uh, some people in Armenian camp in error will say that you have to, as this guy last night was arguing with me about, you have to continually walk in goodness in order to be saved, in order to keep yourself right with God. And I say, no, that's heresy. That's damnable heresy. Because you do not perfect in the flesh what God has begun in the spirit, Galatians 3, 1 through 3. And so I have to correct them. And now just because someone says that doesn't mean they're not saved because a lot of times people are just ignorant. And so I have to teach them. And I give them the scriptures. We go through it. I teach them. And a lot of times they go, oh, okay, that's it. Oh, now I get it. And they get it because they're regenerate. People can be saved in different levels of ignorance. But if they continually were to say, for example, that, no, you've got to be good. You've got to keep yourself right with God through your repentance, through your faith. You know, we got to do this. You can't do these bad things. And that's how you keep yourself saved. That's moderate, That's synergism. And that's heretical and damnable. Gotcha. And uh, do you, let's see, what, Carl Roberts said, the Armenian is a synergist that holds the to works-based salvation 
So how are they our brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, so Karl Marx is contradictory to Calvinistic ideas, correct? Right. Yeah. There are no works. All our works are, are filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. There's nothing we can do. And so what Carl would have to do at this point is defend from Scripture that they have an, a, a works-based system. And he, I would hope that he would understand that there are variations soteriologically within varying individuals about this. And so I would I'd urge him to do that. And how would you define this kind of notion or uh, view of what is Christ consciousness? It's new age theology uh, and is permeating through some of the areas of Christian theology and weak churches like weak teachers like Joyce Meyer, um, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland. They're all false teachers. And I can show you why. But Christ consciousness is the idea that the Christ is a, an ethereal kind of a presence. And Jesus came in contact with that. It was a better manifestation of the Christ principle, the Christ consciousness principle, and that we can uh, achieve a similar level of awareness in the Christ consciousness aspect if we uh, get certain aspects of knowledge and things like that. It's mainly in the New Age movement. Yeah, no, it sounds just like Blavatsky or Ascended Masters yes. kind of view of Christ. Ooh. Yeah, no. yeah, pretty well. Hey, I'm impressed. Oh, I'm impressed. You. you said Blavatsky. Good for you. I got know a few things here and there. So for you, you've been in the church for four decades. You are clearly know your, your background in scripture. For somebody who would be like uh, maybe a milk-drinking Christian or somebody who just started, what would be your recommendation to them? on how to proceed and, and avoid some of these modern pitfalls of people like Meyer and Osteen? Well, what I would suggest is um, two things. One, go to CARM. And I, I don't like don't like the idea of saying, hey, go to my website. I know it all. And, you know, trust me, you know, I don't like that even a hint of anything like that. But I will say this. I've been doing the. I've been defending the Christian faith for 41 years. And I mean a lot of defense, not just one or two days a month. We're talking hours and hours a week. And this is what I do. And I've written a great deal of theology and you can go to CARM and look up that stuff. And I would recommend you do that in the Christian theology section and read through there and check everything I say with scripture. I mean, you can't trust a guy with the last name Slick. And I'd always, I mean, I'd also go and look up Justin Peters. He's a friend of mine and what he does is he works inside the Christian church exposing the false teachers like Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, and others, uh, which I, I do too to a lesser degree, but you'll find his information be very, very well informed, and you can learn that way. Gotcha. And what, Justin Peterson, you said? Justin Peters. Peters, sorry. Justin yeah. Peters. And there's another question. Was Christ or was Jesus a Melchizedek? Melchizedek. He was not a Melchizedek, but he was baptized according to the Melchizedek priesthood. In Matthew 3.15, uh, he went to get baptized by John. And John says, you need to baptize me. And Jesus says, no, we need to fulfill all righteousness. To fulfill means the Old Testament. So Jesus was made under the law, Galatians 4.4. 4, and he, of course, he never sinned, 1 Peter 2.22. So what did he fulfill when he got baptized? Well, if you go to Leviticus 8, Numbers 4, Exodus 29, you'll find out that in order to enter into the priesthood, that you had to be 30 years of age, 
Jesus was 30 when he was baptized, had to have a verbal blessing given, my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, had to be anointed with oil, that's representative of the Holy Spirit, 1 John 2, 27, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and a verbal blessing, oh, and he had to be sprinkled with water, that's uh, that's uh, Numbers 8, 7. So Jesus was sprinkled in his baptism. That's a whole other thing that people don't know about. I can talk about baptism quite a bit, but that baptism that Jesus underwent according to the law was a sprinkling. And I can talk about that, but nevertheless. Gotcha. So that goes back to Melchizedek, who was what the king of Salem, who didn't he wasn't he the blesser of uh, was it not Salem Abraham. Samuel? Yeah, he blessed Abraham because Abraham, Abraham baptized till Melchizedek, and that's Hebrews seven seven through ten talks about that. So Jesus entered into the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews six twenty seven twenty five talks about this, so that he could be the high priest sacrifice and the kinsman redeemer, uh, Hebrews two seventeen. So that's why he was baptized, to fulfill the Old Testament requirements of entering into the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Gotcha. Okay, here's a question from Mike, J. Mike. Matt claims God can't make squared circle as it's against his nature. Right. Why can he create liars which are against his nature? Isn't this just admitting the laws of logic are describing behaviors of existence? I don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, no, God cannot make a square circle because it's an impossibility. Can God can only do that which is consistent with his nature. The very laws of logic, law of identity, law of non-contradiction, law of excluded middle, law of proper inference, are universal truth abstractions that are inviolate, they're absolute, and they're transcendent. And I can get into all that. And so they emanate out of the mind of God, who then who himself is ubiquitous. And therefore, they these laws of logic have a ubiquitous character. They don't come into existence. God did not invent them. They are a revelation of his character, and they produce or lay the foundation of intelligibility. And so we would say that the Christian Trinitarian God is a necessary precondition for intelligibility. God cannot violate those laws, not because they're superior to him, but because they're part of his nature. And God, therefore, cannot lie because... Well, because he can't lie, it's against his nature and his holiness. He always tells the truth. So uh, it bases out of the character of God and the Trinitarian revelation, which is interesting to talk about the Trinity for a while. Right, and you do cover the Trinity, at least in your index of this book. Where's the best place for listeners to find your books and material? They can go to Amazon, type in my name, Matt Slick, and uh, you can see a bunch of books that I've got written there. And I'm working on others, um, as well as other articles and things like that. I do a radio show, which I'll be on in an hour and 15 minutes, That's called Matt, Matt Slick Live. And um, if you want to watch, uh, I do StreamYard every day. And if you just go to the CARM homepage, and in the middle of the page, uh, you'll on the right-hand side, you'll see uh, a link that says Matt Slick Live. And then you can watch the show. I, I sit literally in this chair with this with a different microphone and uh, do the show. But it really goes out to, I think, I'd see there's 16 or 20. I don't know how many radio stations out there, mainly in the East Coast, Ohio, Utah, and, uh, and things like that. People listen. Sorry. Great, and you're also on YouTube, so I'm trying to pop up your YouTube channel. There's farm yep. videos, so yep. you can see all these. Oh, that's, there you are. That's right. There Sorry. be. That's when I was younger, had darker hair. Gotcha. <laughs> so well, at least you're still on YouTube. I, I unfortunately am not. Well, at least my old channel. But um, so you're on YouTube under C A R M videos. Also, you can watch uh, his Streamyard at C A R M dot org. His videos under Matt Facebook. FL. Yeah, Facebook. Matt Slick, Twitter. so people can check that out. And the book we kind of discussed and covered today was is Apologetic and Atheism. 
exposing exposing atheism's weaknesses books one and two so you guys can check that out but uh mr slick thank you so much for your time you're excellent thank you anytime anytime we're gonna talk about all kinds of things all right cool we'll we'll cover islam next or something like that sure all right take care all right god bless